Now this passage that I read immerses us directly into one of the most distasteful aspects of the Christian faith for many people. It's usually called church discipline. And in response to the fact that one of the members in the Corinthian church was living in an immoral relationship, Paul says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And it's well known that churches have sometimes kicked people out. Uh, most of us remember reading the Scarlet Letter when we were in high school and the story in Puritan America of the woman who had to plaster a large letter A on her dress to represent that she was an adulteress. We may watch shows on television about the Amish and their practice of shunning people who have not met the community standards, and we wonder, is that what Christians are supposed to do? And the thought of a church deciding that it won't let one of its members be a member anymore seems to be wrong to many of us, the very opposite of grace and mercy. After all, we think, didn't Jesus say, let the one who was without sin among us cast the first stone? And didn't he say, judge not, lest you too be judged? But there you have it in black and white in the pages of the book. Ought not, or let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he goes on and says it more explicitly even than that. The Apostle Paul commands his church to remove from among them a sinning member. And how can that be justified? Well, we're going to take three weeks to look at this passage because it's a very full passage and has a lot of important information for us. If we want to be a church, as God designed a church to be, it's something that we need to think about. But this morning, all I want to do is convince you that what Paul says here is something that is good and right and necessary, that in fact, without it, you don't have a church in the New Testament sense of the word, not the church that Jesus came to bring. So let's look at this passage and see if it bears that out. The problem in Corinth is exposed in the first sentence. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Those last few words are all that we know about the problem. It could mean a number of things, but most likely what it means is that a man who is a member of the church, his father was married a second time to a woman who would have been his stepmother, mother, and his father subsequently most likely died or possibly divorced the woman. And now this man, this church member, is living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And he says explicitly, not only that this is immoral, but it's the kind not even tolerated among pagans. And that's important. I'm not sure how that strikes you today in our very permissive society, but uh, the fact is the Roman society was incredibly permissive by our standards, at least on most things. Jewish society was not. Jewish law expressly forbids a man living with a woman who had ever been married to his father. Roman law likewise forbid it and treated it the same as a person marrying his sister. The degree of relationship was considered too close. And the point is that even pagans, which is the Greek word that means people who adhere to the Roman religion with Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and all the such, and they go to the temples and offer sacrifice, even those people do not accept this kind of situation. Now there's something that we know from the historical record, and that is that the church 
wasn't dealing with this correctly. And Paul writes here to help them learn how they ought to, to deal with it. He says, first of all, and you are arrogant. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean you are proud of this matter of immorality in your midst. That is possible. It's possible that they were boasting because they had learned from the Apostle Paul himself that Christianity, the Christian faith, is profoundly countercultural. We are meant to live in a way by values and standards that are quite different from the values and standards of people around us. And in the idea that it's countercultural, some people sometimes draw the lines in the wrong place. And they figure that because Christ stood with those on the margins of society at times, that we too should stand with those who are marginalized, even if they are on the edges of society because of an immoral lifestyle. That somehow such people are objects of grace. And there are churches today that defend that kind of thing. But that's probably not what Paul is talking about. It's hard to believe that the church would have literally been um, arrogant with this kind of matter that even they had grown up, those who were from a pagan background, they had grown up with the sense that that's something wrong. More likely, what he's referring to is the arrogance that he's already covered in the first four chapters. This church was incredibly blessed by God. It was one of the largest churches we are aware of in the New Testament. Some five or six house churches are listed within the city. At the end of Romans, Paul, in referring to Corinth, says that the whole church, that means all of the different house churches met together periodically in the home of the city treasurer who was a member of the church named Erastus. And uh, they were arrogant or they boasted about their superiority spiritually. That was what he dealt with in the first few chapters. They gathered around different teachers and admired them. And he is probably saying here, there's this matter of immorality, and you are so proud of your spirituality and how great you are, and let, look, yet look at what it is you have going on here that you're not dealing with. Some interpreters, for good reason, figure that the man may have been one of the more wealthy patrons in the church, because we know that was a problem. There were several very wealthy individuals and they were looked to as being particularly important simply because of their wealth, which is, of course, always a problem in the church. And the people didn't want to um, deal with someone who held the purse strings for much of what they did together as a church. There are some reasons for thinking that, though it's not stated, but it may have been that the church was, rather than being proudly tolerant of this, they were more fearful. They tolerated it because they didn't want to deal with someone who was so important in the city and in the church. But whatever the reason, Paul is saying you're not dealing with this, and you must. You must deal with it. Now, no, we're not dealing here with the normal struggle with sin. That's true of all Christians. We struggle with sin. At times, we fall. There are times when Christians fall quite grievously. But when we fall, we pick ourselves up. We repent of what we have done, and we move in a different direction. We may seek the help of other people to help us to do that, but we're not dealing with the normal struggle with sin that goes on. We're dealing with flagrant, open rebellion against the moral commands of God by someone who, as far as we know, had stopped struggling. It was no longer a struggle because he had simply given in to what he wanted to do, as people sometimes do. Now, remember when we started this morning's worship, we noted that passage from Galatians where Paul says about Jesus, he gave himself for our sins. 
to deliver us from this present evil age, to make us different. And the Bible's message of grace is a message of both grace and transformation. It's a message of God's mercy, forgiving sinful people and drawing us to himself. But when he embraces us, he also makes us his sons and daughters, and he begins to work in our lives to change us on the inside, and he gives us three things to enable us to do that. He gives to us his word, the Bible. He gives to us his spirit, who is the indwelling teacher of all Christians. And he gives to us the people of God, the church. And in the context of the church, with the word of God and the power of the spirit, we are meant to help each other, to encourage each other. And that's why we meet in all the various settings that we meet as individuals when we get together for lunch or dinner or breakfast with someone else and talk about our faith, when we meet in Bible studies, in small groups, in ministry teams, on Sunday morning, whatever it is, when we meet, that's our purpose, to bring those three things to bear on our lives, God's word and his spirit and his people, in order to bring about a transformation. And Paul says here that we can't ignore flagrant violations of God's will. We can't tolerate them, whether we do it out of some misguided pride or we do it out of fear of dealing with it. We can't do it, but we must deal with it. We have to eradicate it. So he says, ought you not rather to mourn? That's the first point. Obviously, that points to the humility that ought to be engendered whenever a person falls into sin. He says it more clearly in Galatians chapter 6, that when someone stumbles, we need to seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because the basic idea is that we are capable of being tempted and of sinning ourselves. So we need to try to humbly and to gently, but to very firmly, as is the burden of this passage, to firmly deal with sin. Now at the heart of this issue is an understanding of what the church is and what the church is all about. But the idea is basically if you, if you take a coal out of the fireplace and you set it on the hearth, that coal will eventually cool off and die. In the same way, if you take a Christian out of the context of the fellowship of the church, the person will spiritually weaken and begin to disintegrate the strength and the fiber of Christian life because we are meant to live within the fellowship of the family of God. And the fellowship of believers, a church, is a group of people who are not just Sinners, but we're redeemed sinners. We're seeking to spur each other on to fellowship with God. And so the basic fact is how my brother or sister lives is my concern. That's usually one of the things that's spoken against any idea of dealing with a problem within the church is, listen, uh, how, how can it be, why should it be your concern how a person lives? But what could be more compassionate and caring than a severe rebuke if it draws another back from falling into sin and under the judgment of God. That's the nature of the church. That's why we're here. Now, you say, well, didn't Jesus say judge not? Well, absolutely, he said that. And there he's speaking of do not make evaluations of people for the purpose of condemning them. To judge there means to condemn. And we all know what it's like to have a self-righteous spirit and to seek to evaluate other people for the purpose of pointing out their shortcomings. And that's not what we're to do. But Jesus could never have meant that any evaluation is wrong. 
How could he mean that? After all, he also said, you'll know them by their fruits. We, we have to, as we go through life, evaluate both our conduct and the conduct of other people. But the whole point is what you're evaluating it for. In scripture, we are to evaluate each other for the purpose of strengthening, for the purpose of inciting, holding each other accountable and seeking to restore those who fail. And that's what's being spoken of here. So we must not tolerate open rebellion in the church, whether it's out of pride or it's out of fear. And he gives a reason for it that I want you to note in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, leaven is not the same as yeast. Yeast is a relatively stable substance that uh, can last for a long time under the right conditions until it needs to be used in order to cause bread to rise. Leaven is a bit different than that. Leaven is where you take a pinch a piece off of the bread dough that you are making and you set it aside, usually put it under a, a, a cool but not cold and moist towel, and you leave it there out while you bake the bread. And what it does is it begins to ferment. And in the process of fermenting, it releases things that would be necessary to cause bread to rise. And so the next week when you make bread again, you take that little piece and you add it to the dough and you knead it very thoroughly and the leaven spreads throughout the dough and causes the the bread to rise. So it's very important. It's how bread was made in the ancient world. And today it's called sourdough bread. You can get it at Panera if you're interested in that. But you need to understand that that process, when you set it aside and it begins to ferment, is the beginning of rot. If you leave it there too long, what happens is it turns into a gooey, sticky, mostly liquefied mess that smells bad, and you have to throw it away. You you have to use it at the right time because it is in the process of rotting. Now, it was the process used in the Old Testament. He's referring to that here. Uh, the celebration of Passover. When the Israelites left Egypt, the story is that they had to leave very quickly and they couldn't leave with bread dough that was already made or taking anything with them but the implements to cook. So when they made bread for the first time, they wouldn't be able to have anything to cause it to rise. That's why they ate unleavened bread when they left Egypt. And so in keeping with that, the Jewish people have celebrated the Passover. And what they do is they cleanse their homes of all leaven. They were told to do that. And uh, in modern times, it happens that uh, I had a friend who, who lived next door to an Orthodox Jewish family, and every year they would give her all the spices in their cabinet. They'd take a box and put all the spices in there, and they'd start all over. Well, that was kind of an extension of this. It went way beyond what Scripture was saying. But Scripture was saying you remove, in the, pr- the process of baking, the leaven. And there was a health reason for it as well in the ancient world, And that is, by its very nature, leaven continues week after week if you keep doing this over and over. And it has a tendency or the possibility of spreading diseases that way because you're using something in the process of rot over and over. And so they would take all the leaven out of their home every week and they would start the process every year and start the process over. And that's what he's referring to when he says, cleanse out the old leaven. Now, in this place, he's using leaven as a picture, as it often is in the Bible, of the insidious power of sin. 
just as you take a small piece of dough that was broken off the week before that is beginning to ferment and you add it to a huge lump of dough, you know that the process that is going on in that small lump is going to permeate the whole in the same way sin, when it is tolerated in a community, has an insidious ability to spread throughout the whole. So he says you have to deal with this in the same way. And his advice is clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened in Christ and leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And he uses there this beautiful picture that everything that the Passover pictured, that they did once a year as an idea that sin spreads and that they were removing all of the influence from their lives, that that idea has been fulfilled in Christ. And we do not celebrate a Passover festival once a year. We celebrate the Passover every day in Christ. And every Lord's Day, when we meet here and we worship, that's what we're doing. We're celebrating the fact that what that pictured has been fulfilled in Christ coming and giving himself for our sins to cleanse us from sin. And God calls us to live, as it were, using his illustration here, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this is a message that is built on the whole message of Jesus, the message of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, it says. And many people think that grace is simply a tolerance for sin. Like God says, it's okay all the things that you've done wrong. I welcome you back. They may even understand that he welcomes us back through Jesus. But many people seem to think that's all there is to grace. But grace in scripture is not only forgiving and cleansing, it's transforming. And the gospel perfectly balances these two things. The grace that forgives us, brings us to God and into his embrace, and the grace by which, as his sons and daughters, he calls us to live a life that will reflect his character to other people. And grace uh, is not just legalism or self-righteousness. It's not even that at all. Grace is the power of God working inside a person and inside a community to bring about a change. I mean, grace is what made the prostitute whom Jesus met at a well in Samaria, who had lived a, a, a very profligate life. It, it made her as though she were a young virgin who had never been with a man. And, and grace is what took King David, an adulterer and a murderer, and made him like an innocent and blameless person in the eyes of God. And grace took a self-righteous Pharisee like the Apostle Paul and made him a preacher of the free mercy of God for guilty people. And it's the same today. That's what grace does. That's why churches meet. We meet to celebrate the grace of God. Any person who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith trusting that he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead, is made a new person, according to Scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, all things have become new. But that grace that cleanses us and saves us also teaches us to live for God. So grace is not a tolerance for sin, and the burden of this passage is that as a church, 
we must not tolerate sin, but we must deal with it straightforwardly, gently, and humbly. And the reason we need to do that is so that we can display accurately the transforming grace of God. Now, let's be careful to think exactly what we mean by that. We must deal with it. We're not talking about being a place where every single idle word is picked up by someone else and confronted. That would not be a very enjoyable place to be. We're not talking about a place where, where uh, the normal uh, failures of people's lives are always being brought out in example and uh, made examples of. We're talking about flagrant, open violations of God's moral and ethical will as it's revealed in Scripture. Those are the things that God calls us to deal with. And the real underlying issue, as I said earlier, is the nature of the church. What is the church? And that's where people are most confused. It's not really about what is immorality or something like that. It's what is the church. And here's the fact. If the church is just a club, like a, a sewing club, I mean, if it's just a gathering of people who happen to like to talk about religion, and so they gather, we gather, and set aside some time to talk about religion, if that's all the church is, then we needn't concern ourselves with the lifestyles of our members. But we're not a club. And if the church is a social organization, I mean an organization that exists in the community in order to do some social good for other people, like Kiwanis or Rotary or something like that, if that's all we are, then our individual lives aren't that much of a concern to other people as long as we don't hurt anyone. We're just here to provide some social good, and so we ought to get about it and do it. Or if, as many churches seem to be today, we're just a religious business whose function is to provide uh, some religious things that people like and that they're willing to pay for, then our only concern needs to be whether or not we are dispensing those things and they like it enough to pay for it. But we're not a religious business. We have business functions, but we're not a business. I mean, it really depends on what you think of the church. And what did Jesus say of the church? And when Peter confessed that Jesus was God and Savior, when he did that, Jesus said, on this rock, the rock of confession that Peter made, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is a community that Jesus is building. He's building it on the confession of him as Savior and Lord. So all of us who acknowledge that he has forgiven our sins and cleansed us, and that he is the Lord, he has a right to rule over us, we are called to be his new society, the adherents of his kingdom right now. His kingdom is in present. We live in the kingdoms of this world, all the different nations and places. We find ourselves on the earth, but we are meant to be his new society. And so we form smaller local societies, like a local church is, like ours, in which we are called to live as aliens in a larger human society of which we're a part, and we share many things in common. We dress similarly, and we speak the same language, and we work at jobs alongside of people. But we cannot fully accept the values and the standards of those in the larger society, so we form the Society of Christ, God's new society, in which we seek to live by his values and his standards. And in these small communities, we seek to be both uh, worshipers of Christ 
and witnesses for him so that we can beckon other people to come to Christ and live for him and with him. That's what the church is. In fact, if you think of it this way, the church is the adherence of God's kingdom now who will someday people the kingdom of God when he brings it to pass. So what we're doing is very important. A church, an individual local church, is kind of like an embassy in which we establish a, a small piece of territory within the larger society. And that small piece of territory is the place where we call others to live by the values and the standards of a kingdom that hasn't yet appeared. And so at times we're made fun of, we're ridiculed. Other times we're called down, we're told that we can't do that or say that to people. But regardless of that, if you're a Christian, the church is not a them or a they or a you. The church is a we and an us. And what I'm trying to convince you is that what God tells us to do in our little outpost of his kingdom here at this church is to represent both the grace and the transformation of the gospel. And we do that in the way that he has given to us by loving and caring and encouraging each other and also by holding each other accountable for the way that we live, whether we live to the glory of God or we live to rebel against him. So that's why God calls his people to play hardball with sin because we want to be a place where he is present with power to transform lives and we want to more powerfully reflect his character to other people as we move through life. Let's pray. Our Father, our prayer to you this morning with thanksgiving that you have given to us your word is that you would make us a true church. You would continue to work in and through each person who is a part of this church to strengthen the whole, that we would, in fact, recognize our need for other people, that it is one of the means that you have given to us in order to experience your work inside of us. You've given us those relationships with other people who are redeemed. And you've given to us your word, and you've given to us your spirit. We think of all those well, tens of thousands of people who live within 15 minutes of this building, and so many of them we know wake up this morning with a hangover, or they wake up with no concern for you, just thinking that today is a good day to watch a movie and drink some coffee. And we pray that you would, by your grace, draw people like that to yourself. Because so many of us were in that situation. We lived lives of so-so character. We weren't the worst people that there are, neither the best. And, and yet we had no concern higher than our eyes could reach. We thought only of this life and what it would give to us. And yet you awakened us to yourself and you used you used people to awaken us and to draw us to yourself through your word. And so we pray that you would help us to be that kind of church and that in the process of that, we would be a place where grace and transformation is known. And we entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Thank you.